0: Next speaker is Dr. Reek. Uh, He attended the uh, Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana in 1989 to 1993. He uh, was followed by Indiana University School of Medicine at campuses in Bloomington, Indiana, as well as Indianapolis in 93 to 97. His first uh, internship year was completed at the Honolulu, Hawaii in 1997, 1998. He returned to Indianapolis to complete his dermatology residency at Indiana University in 98 to 2001, he's been f- fortunate to practice in a single specialty group in Bloomington, Indiana, since 2001, which has afforded him the chance to teach medical students, residents, nursing students, and physician assistant students as a clinical professor in Indiana University School of Medicine. He's uh, informed me that he is also just uh, getting ready to maybe hire a couple PAs. Please welcome Dr. Reek.
1: Um, this is gonna be a little bit of a challenge because I lost my voice three days ago. Uh, so I'm gonna do the best I can to keep you engaged. Um, if, you, if you can't hear, give me a signal and we'll try, we'll try to turn up the microphone a little bit more. Um, and uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm really honored to be able to have the chance to speak with, you, speak with you. I was looking at the names on the roster who else was speaking and I uh, feel like almost more of an observer here than a leader. Uh, but hopefully I'll have something to add to the discussion. And so whenever we do talks, we're supposed to declare any conflict of interest. Um, I have in the past received speaking fees uh, for two of the drugs that I'll be talking about. Um, and then when I was a dermatology resident, Indiana University was one of the uh, clinical research sites uh, for Amavive and so I actually had the, the um, task of performing exams on uh, patients that were undergoing the trial. Uh, of course, we were double blinded at that time, so we didn't know which patients were on drug and which were on placebo. Although if they responded, we usually had a strong suspicion uh, that they were on drug. Um, and then also, I guess it's in some ways a conflict of interest because I utilize all these treatments in our office, so <clears throat> I try not to have any bias uh, for them, so. And I noticed outside there that Senecor, I guess, is helping to fund this, uh, this talk. I wasn't aware of that, but pardon me my first sip here. So the grand title of the future of psoriasis treatment was kind of evoking futuristic images in my mind. Um, so I have some kind of retro future images to stick in here as long as we go along the way. So, And as Chris mentioned, I'm at a group with... Uh, four total dermatologists. Right now we have one PA who's working with us. Um, we do a variety of treatments for psoriasis in, in office, including the prescriptions we do out of the office, including narrowband UVA, narrowband UVB. We have a hand and foot PUVA unit as well as a, an eczema laser. Um, I started to do Remicade infusions in the office about a year and a half ago on a few patients, um, and we do AMIV, uh injections. Uh, as well. You may notice on there that I put Ambrel injections in the office there and uh, <clears throat> I, did, I wanted to make sure that I was being thorough including it, but you may say, well, why Why in the world would you do that? If you have a patient that is uh, not very sophisticated or you just can't trust to keep their medication at home, an option that you can do is have their medication shipped to your office and they can come in um, at whatever interval, you know, whether it's Ambrel or another drug. Uh, and we have a, a young woman who uh, pretty frequently when uh, lose your medication or not refrigerate it, it's a it's such an expensive thing that you don't really want to ruin any of that medication, so we just have her come to the office. Most importantly, I'm not an immunologist and I'm not a basic science researcher, so if I butcher any of the basic science that I'm about to discuss with you, if you have a background in that, please forgive me. Um, for, for me, I have to dumb down most of the concepts so I can understand it and uh, It all starts to look like alphabet soup after a while when you start seeing all the cytokines. So so we're gonna look at what are the features of an ideal treatment? Where have we been? Because it's important to know what have we done in the past? What are we doing now? And and what are the the trends for where we're headed? And then also kind of outside the the, the research spectrum of things, what sort of things are gonna influence how we're treating our patients in the future? Um, And chiefly among those are government policy decisions Originally, when I was going to do the talk, I was going to include comorbidities for psoriasis, but Dr. Mentor is going to be speaking to you later this afternoon, so I went ahead and dropped that part out of my presentation. I I will say this, however, is for a lot of outsiders who are unfamiliar with psoriasis, they're unfamiliar with the impact that it has on patients, may look at psoriasis treatments as, as somewhat superficial and unnecessary or cosmetic Um, And there's growing evidence that that's uh, not the case, that if you have active inflammation in your skin, you have active inflammation that causes comorbidities, reduced lifespan in patients. And so one of the big uh, efforts and research that's not, not basic science research, but more epidemiology is gonna see what happens when these patients are treated and they're made well. If their skin and joints are made well, are we reducing their comorbidities? Because that's something that will prompt government policymakers maybe to look at things more seriously. So, ideal medications. Now, what a patient may see as ideal and what a manufacturer may see might be two different things. Uh, number one, if it's an affordable medication, that's going to be great for a patient. Um, and manufacturers, I don't think that they would necessarily intentionally make a drug very, very, very expensive but they wanna make sure that they can make a profit on the drug <clears throat> and that's, that's important to keep in mind. Um, it needs to be convenient because as we all know, compli- convenience is really essential to having good compliance and there has been a, a difficulty with some dr- drugs that we use in the past for other things. Manufacturers want it to be convenient because they want the patients to stay on the drug. Um, It needs to be a convenient dosing regimen and that's been, in in recent years, has been really great for a lot of our patients because instead of taking a pill daily or putting applications of topical agents on uh, once, twice, three times a day, they may be using a medication once a week, every other week, once every six to eight weeks, and coming in the pipeline maybe every three months. Um, So that's great for the patients. Again, for manufacturers, they want it to be convenient and they want that compliance. At the same time, uh, they have a conflict of interest because they want to keep on selling that drug. So they want that dosing to be frequent and, and perpetual, hopefully, for, for them. Everyone wants it to be efficacious. Everyone, to, everyone would want it to have minimal side effects. And for the most part, we want it to be applicable to all forms of psoriasis. Right now, if you look at the way the FDA has approved certain therapies, it's for plaque-type psoriasis. It's hard to do studies on guttate psoriasis because of the nature of the disease. And we know that a lot of these agents work for that. Uh, So so that's good. Um, But if you've ever had to uh, steer your way through some of the approval forms for these drugs, if you put down guttate psoriasis alone, oftentimes that'll be sent back as, well, that's not indicated for that. Uh, Pardon me. So, the futuristic looking family, there are like looking to their home. <coughs> as an aside too, as a background, I was actually a history major in college, so I think it's pretty important to look at the past. So treatments in the past, um, if you go back 100, 200 years, primarily patients that had psoriasis were looking at tar preparations, going to natural springs, getting sunlight, and going places with seawater and it was not uncommon for patients with psoriasis or atopic dermatitis to be told by their physicians, you need to move to the coast. Um, not all of us can live on the coast uh, and many of our patients today would probably not be real excited if we say you need to move to the coast and that was our only option uh, for there. And then along the way, we had better options for topical agents like topical steroids and uh, options like systemic corticosteroids uh, and methotrexate as well. So the Dead Sea is one place that's had a history of of treatment for patients with a variety of disorders, but especially disorders of the skin. Back in the 80s, it was determined that because of the depth uh, of the Dead Sea, it's actually below sea level, a lot of actually UVB radiation gets weeded out. And so most of the UV exposure that one gets in the area of the Dead Sea is actually the same wavelengths that you have with narrowband UVB. Uh, which might explain why patients that go there for treatment get better, at least partially. Now, there is also testaments by a lot of people and in some research that suggests that some of the mud that's there in the water has anti-inflammatory properties. And you can actually go and find places that will market these products. <clears throat> this photo is actually from an online Israeli website promoting treatments in the, at the Dead Sea. and. There used to be exhibitors that would come to the AED convention with products that had Dead Sea ingredients. I don't know if that's the case still. And the same is true for in Iceland. There's a, a, there's a spring there, a natural spring, um, with waters that have been shown to be helpful for patients with psoriasis. They also have products that are marketed. They're usually also at the convention here. They don't have the advantage of wavelength uh, that they have in the Dead Sea. Now, this is my first uh, shameless self-promotion of of the Hoosier State. Um, believe it or not, uh, there's a lot of places in the United States that had natural springs that became popular for people to get treatments as well. And that includes West Maiden Springs uh, in French Lick, Indiana. Now, most of you might know French Lick because of Larry Bird, uh, but before Larry Bird, French Lick was actually a recreation area for a lot of um, high-profile, uh, People, including Al Capone. A lot of people would take the train down from Chicago, they had gambling down there, people would visit the Springs, and there was this glorious hotel that was built. Uh, thankfully there's a, uh, a great benefactor who lives in Bloomington, his name is Bill Cook. He has a medical, medical companies um, and he is just a really outstanding gentleman and he's restored the hotel and also has built a new hotel for the area there and they've revived the gambling industry. But it's just gorgeous if you ever have a chance to visit. It was declared the eighth wonder of the world when it was built in 1902. It was the largest domed structure in the world. Um, and it had really fallen into disrepair in the 30s. It became a college and then it was a monastery for a while and it was set idle for a long time too. But it's, it's gorgeous now. But the springs there were called Pluto's water and they used to market it and they have a a historical section there where you can see where they did some of the treatments. And they've actually revived some of the baths there now. So the ideal things about treatments in the past were, they were relatively inexpensive. It's not too expensive to go stand out in the sunlight. Um, And even systemic and intralesional and topical corticosteroids to, to some degree are fairly inexpensive treatments. Fairly uh, convenient dosing if you just walk out in the sunlight. It's sometimes inconvenient for patients to come to an office to have light therapy, but they can get in home light booths. Methotrexate, it's a once-weekly dosing, so not too bad either. And overall, you can actually have some pretty good efficacy with methotrexate and cortic- corticosteroids. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that if any of you gave a high enough dose of steroids or methotrexate to a psoriasis patient, their psoriasis will go away. The problem is, is that the side effects that come with it. So one of my mentors who was at the university, Dr. Wolverton used the word suboptimal frequently. Um, So for methotrexate, you get buildup of toxic metabolites that can cause liver damage. So that's why you have to do monitoring for something like that. But beyond that, there are some potentially fatal and, and serious consequences like pulmonary fibrosis And it's a teratogen, so in certain populations you just can't use it if you have a mother or a young woman who's interested in getting pregnant. And same for corticosteroids. You can give people high doses of corticosteroids and make virtually any inflammatory disease go away, but they'll start to get skin atrophy, they'll suppress their HPA access, they may get gastric ulcers, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's those side effects and lack of um, of efficacy at lower doses that have kind of prompted us to say, hey, we need to look for other therapies. So looking to the future, I found this online. This is an ad from 1968. The caption down there says, women of the future um, will keep the moon uh, a cleaner place. Things have changed a little bit from 68. So so at present, uh, we're still using some of the past therapies, UV radiation methotrexate, and, and that's actually been around for treatment of cancer since the 40s, but for sprius is more like the 50s and 60s. is a relatively recent new addition, and it is typical of some of the older therapies. This is really, a, it's an, a chemical composition. It's found in nature, but it's something that's it's produced by chemistry. Whereas with the, the newer drugs, the biologics, Um, they're called biologics, personally, because of the way that they're made. They're actually grown in a lab. They're huge, huge molecules, which is why they have to be infused or injected. And it's very, very complex to manufacture them. So the cost is, it's high in research and development, but actually production costs are extremely expensive as well. And it's really tightly controlled. And one of the things that I had kind of discovered doing my research about this is that even the companies that you know make these drugs, they don't have one plant that makes all of their their drugs. They frequently have two or three plants. Oftentimes it may take months or years for the FDA to approve a plant because they can't get their drugs to be that similar that are made in different plants. So it's really, really expensive expensive to do it. So so the ideal things about current treatment with biologics and others is, again, efficacy. Um, it's been a pleasure for, for me to see that unfold over time. When I was finishing my residency is when these drugs were just starting to come out of research, come on the market. And I'll share a story with you. When I was doing the trials for Amavive, as it so happened, one of one of our patients was one of my teachers from high school. And, and again, as it turns out, he was on the drug. He came in one day and he said, Matt. I bought shorts for the first time in 25 years. And this was just tremendous for him, and he was nearly in tears when he told me this, and it's, it's an honor for, for us as practitioners to be able to offer that to patients that have suffered with this, and hopefully prevent patients from not having to undergo that in the future. On the whole, the dosing regimens are fairly convenient too, so patients aren't having to necessarily do something on a daily basis. The side effects overall, for severe side effects, are, are fairly minimal. And especially when these drugs first come on the market, it's going to be the tendency of the pharmaceutical representatives to emphasize this and say, oh, you know, this is great because you don't have to do lab monitoring this. And I can recall early on when the reps would come. And discuss this with us, they'd say, Oh, you know, this is great. You'll be able to have all your patients off of methotrexate. They won't have to have liver biopsies anymore and such. Well, as we're going to see in a minute, it's not quite the case. There's some side effects that mon- warrant monitoring. Um, and they're potent drugs and they can have some potent side effects, so we have to watch that fairly closely. But probably most importantly is the specificity of the mechanism of action. Because these are working on very, very select proteins in the inflammatory system. The hope is, is that you can really limit damage to the other parts of the system. Uh, so for example, patients that are on high doses of cyclosporine, besides the renal problems you see with that, as far as infections and development of malignancies, it's a, it's a real risk because you're suppressing larger parts of the immune system. Uh, with some of the newer drugs, we don't have to worry about that as much as it looks like. Uh, Data overall for most of the medications suggests that the risk of lymphoma is very low, if not negligible. What's suboptimal is that they're prohibitively expensive. Uh, And I'm sure all of you are aware, but just if you're not, with most of the biologic medications, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars a year. Um, Now, That's important because whether it's tax dollars or whether it's insurance that you're paying out every month out of your paycheck for insurance, and that money's coming from somewhere, Um, so we have to basically see what what value is it for for the patients and for the system as a whole. Uh, It's suboptimal that the potential severity is pretty extreme. And it's inconvenient dosing in that usually people are having to be stuck for these things. And so there's a lot of patients who don't revel that thought. And then I mentioned the difficulties in manufacturing these agents, so. So for the, the agents that we've had in the past, you've had mild to moderate potency, usable potency for the drugs as with the drugs that we have at present, we have these moderate to high-potency medications that are pretty easily achievable. The side effect profile for some of the older medications like corticosteroids, cyclosporine, methotrexate—pardon <coughs> me really necessitate more frequent visits with these patients, monitoring blood pressure, weight, liver enzymes, um, biopsies of the liver in some cases, um, and so it, it makes it inconvenient for patients and makes it costly too. All those things cost a lot of money. Um, and whereas, again, with the newer agents, the side of profile is seemingly more narrow, but again, potentially serious. Um, one of the difficulties is that a lot of these patients, they get started these medications, they do so well, they don't wanna come back in for visits. Now. Dr. Fretzen, who spoke to you this morning, is honestly probably one of the real regional leaders in psoriasis in Indiana. Um, and so he and I have this discussion a lot. It's hard because these patients will call and they say, I just want to have a refill of my medication. Um, and we may have done a disservice to patients early on by trying to convince them, hey, this you know, it's a good medication. Um, and we might need to really emphasize the side effects more to them, so they take it more seriously. And then again, the me- mechanism of action for drugs in the past has been a little bit more widespread. So if you're giving someone methotrexate, you know, you're know you not only affecting what's happening in their skin, but you're affecting endothelial cells in the gut uh, and other protein synthesis. And same thing for cyclosporin with calcineurin inhibitors. The effect is a little bit more widespread, whereas, you have real specific mechanisms of action for the newer biologic drugs. So with the TNF agents, you're you're binding up a cytokine so that it can't stimulate the immune system so you don't have a flare disease. Um, With other drugs, you can prevent T cell activation and you can facilitate some apoptosis there as well. And that's gonna carry through on themes for future therapy. So. So what's the difference between the old and new? It's basically molecular biology. Um, <coughs> again, dating myself here a little bit, when I was in Bloomington for my first year's med school, um, it was the last years that the, this certain structure on campus called Myers Hall housed uh, gross anatomy, microscopic anatomy, so histology, Physiology departments, pharmacology departments were all in one building. They all got shipped out and put into a smaller space in one of the biology buildings, and the entire building was dedicated to molecular biology. And that's because that's where the future treatment is, is really molecular biology, looking at really specific pathways for the immune system, in the case of psoriasis, in the study of those things. So that's in the academic world. But in the corporate world, this is having an effect, too. Now, I have a friend who's a chemist for Dow Chemical. He works in a biosciences division in agricultural products. And last summer, he told me, they had been pretty gloomy at work. Dow fired a 1,000 of their organic chemists. These are all people that have worked on drugs that currently make Dow millions and millions of dollars. And they hired 750 molecular biologists. And that division has not turned a single penny of profit for Dow. But the gamble for all these companies that their money for the future is gonna come from molecular biology. So if we're gonna see a, a trend to the future, it's highly likely that it's gonna be in molecular biology and not just in treatment of psoriasis, but across all disease states. So we see that right now with rheumatoid arthritis patients and Crohn's disease patients Uh, But you're even seeing it in life sciences for agricultural products as well. In fact, Mr. Cook that I mentioned before uh, bought a building that's next door to where our building is and converted it to make biologic medications. And their first contract is for an agricultural contract that's worth $300 million. Just the contract to make the medication, that's not how much the manufacturer is going to be charging people for it. So... I guess back in the 50s, this is the house we were all supposed to be moving into in the 21st century. So, so, what's in the pipeline? Uh, one of the reasons that I gave you a really, really brief handout, besides the fact that most of the time, 90% handouts that are based off of PowerPoint are dead space and worthless, is that I knew that I would be updating this. So this morning, there, I just looked up online to see how many studies were on the government's website for clinical trials, and this morning it totaled 356. But if you had looked at it a few weeks ago, it was a little bit less than that. Who knows what it will be a few weeks from now. Most, at least, of the new medications that are on that list are never going to make it to market. Um, depending on who do you talk to in the industry, it's something like 90% of products end up getting abandoned uh, in the development process, which is why, from their position, they always harp on R&D costs because it's expensive for them to try to find medications that are gonna work. Some of these medications are drugs that are FDA approved, but they're just looking for a, a application of use. So for example, for a Tantorcept, there was a specific trial they were recruiting for, and they're gonna try to measure changes of, of nail psoriasis. Now, as we all know, nails take a little bit of time to grow. So the timeframes that you see for the skin you know, studies are gonna have to be extended when you're looking at nails. And then some of the other trials are looking at combinations of, the, of medications with other therapies that are there. And so that's just one. So these are some ones that are in your handouts. Um, There's some others there that I won't talk about because I didn't, I didn't wanna try to <coughs> pardon me, go over everything. But these are follow along those key themes of uh, molecular biology. So, this is one that you've probably heard uh, is in the pipeline. Something for interleukin 12, interleukin 12 to interleukin 23. Um, There are completed phase three trials in two agents. Um, So, these two agents are are currently uh, made by manufacturers that already have biologic drugs in the market. So. When you look on these trials, usually the nomenclature there is going to give you a hint on who's making it. So the AB part of that is Abbott, and the CNT is Senecor. Um, now, the is already approved in Europe. I think it already has approval in Canada, too, and it's just been waiting for FDA approval here. Uh, initially, it was supposed to be released in the fall, and then it was delayed until after the beginning of the new year. And then, now we've been hearing that it might be April... But pretty soon we are probably going to see an agent for this. Abbott's drug is probably going to be a little bit longer, maybe like a year before it comes out. Um, so why would they make a drug targeting interleukin-12 and 23 when they have drugs for tumor tumor necrosis factor? Well, <coughs> pardon me. It's a different pathway that's there. And it basically you can just help to stop the differentiation of CD4 cells uh, into TH1 cells, and it's that memory response that will promote psoriatic, psoriatic plaques to continue and promote the inflammation. And when those are activated, you're having release of interferon gamma. So it's to help stop that. Um, Interleukin-23 is a little bit further on the pathway, but interleukin-12 and 23 um, are innately tied together. And in fact, there's a protein called P40 that's a target for both of these drugs. And binding a P40 will, inhibit the activity of those cells. Interleukin-15 is another one, and the, the AMG on there is Amgen, so they're on a little bit different route. When I started to research for this talk, they had phase one trials that were done. They've got phase two trials that are they're in the works now. Um, this is a little different, little different tact. They're going after natural killer cells, uh, which are involved with psoriasis. Natural killer cells and the NKT cells are natural killer-like cells. Um, You can find them in plaques of psoriasis and they give off cytokines that again propagate things. Um, If we were looking at it like a closer cousin of this, uh, you would look at um, Amiviv as one of the drugs that's nearly along this pathway. One of their actions is to inhibit natural killer cells. And so it's the damage to those cells that may help that drug work and maybe a little bit more selective in their action. So there's trials for interleukin-2. Um, and this is not a biologic medication, but a more potent calcineuron inhibitor, so vulcosporin. Um, and through the inhibition of calcineuron, you reduce uh, interleukin-2 locally. And so it's, it's a more potent version than cyclosporin or tacrolimus is. And so the company that makes this is based in Canada have trials for psoriasis, but they're also looking for applications in transplant patients and actually in a topical for, ophthalmic formulation for uveitis to reduce inflammation there. Again, the reason for doing that is, is there are certain side effects you don't have to worry about. So you don't have to worry about things like cataracts like you would with topical corticosteroids um, or atrophy in the skin or things like that. So. The other purported benefit of this is that it's supposed to have a better side effect profile with less renal toxicity for patients. So hopefully that will be uh, released sometime in the next two years. And then we're not gonna see the end of TNF agents at all. Um, There there are trials on a a newer agent called ART621. It's a company that's based in Australia Um, and it's kind of interesting, because they are binding to TNF, but they're using smaller proteins and smaller binding sites, and one of the things they're looking at is that hopefully you won't have as much dose escalation as you might have with the agents that are out there now, or if a patient has become um, sensitive or, uh, or they've experienced tachyphylaxis and they require higher and higher doses of whichever agent they're on, by switching to a drug like this, they may have Sort of a renewed effect there, and they can have a lower, um, <coughs> me, um, a lower dosing level for it. Uh, the other thing that they are studying is that if the molecule is smaller, if it's going to have better penetration to joint spaces as well. So they have application. They have trials out for for rheumatoid arthritis as well, and then the um, the CDP eight. 70 is actually a drug for Crohn's disease. It's on the market for that already. Uh, They're basically looking to see how well they can work for psoriasis so they can get in on the game with all the others that are there. So, so as I was reading through all these medications and I'm looking at these number combinations, I was thinking of this treatment at home. This is our dog. When he came from the breeder, he had a 324T tattooed on the inside of his ear to delineate his lineage. so. So this was, we had a, a pretty snowy winter in the Midwest and there's nothing more pleasurable than watching your dog just running around crazy, playing in the snow, burying his head. So, so what are gonna be the influences on future treatments that are there? Aside from all the research that's there, what are the outside things that are gonna influence? Well, one thing, uh, and again, this has really evolved from the time that, that I was asked to speak to now. I, I knew there would be some changes but I don't think any of us would have probably have predicted what's unfolded basically from last summer to now about what's happened with risk of these medications there. And we're gonna also talk a little bit about government oversight and then new risks with drugs. So I think one of the things that we have to look at is, is if a drug already has a risk that's been established there Um, You have to take it seriously. And so the example that I I highlighted in your handout there was histoplasmosis. So back in September, the FDA issued an alert, uh, and this was after the publication of an analysis of data for patients that were on these types of medications. So this is not just psoriasis patients, this is across the board, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis patients. And what they found was a disturbing trend to patients that were getting histoplasmosis infections. And most of the time, it, those infections not necessarily severe, uh, but in at least 23 of the cases, there were fatal infections uh, that occurred in the patients. And the recurring theme that they saw was that patients were coming in and they were having symptoms that could be compatible with the histoplasmosis infection. So usually low-grade fever, cough, malaise, They were getting treated by whoever was seeing them and treated as if they had a viral illness or bacterial illness, given antibiotics, given support, and no one was paying attention to, hey, we should be looking for these other things. So the government's response was to issue this warning and they asked manufacturers to strengthen the warning that already existed on the label, black box warning now. So does that mean that there are rampant histoplasmosis infections going around Probably not. It's probably something that we just need to be pay more attention to. Now, there are some regions of the country that are more prone to this than others. If you live in the Ohio River Valley, we're one of those regions, so we have to pay attention to it kind of closely. To the best of my knowledge, none of my patients have had an infection, but now when they come through, I emphasize this to them and just say, just like before, if you're sick, we wanna know about it. If you've got a fever, we wanna know about it. There's a test that you can order, a so serologic test, that can take three to six weeks to get back. So it doesn't help you therapeutically, but it's just like anything. If you're not thinking of the diagnosis, you're not gonna make the diagnosis. You just need to think of the diagnosis when you're seeing the patients. So so besides the change in the package insert, the other thing, and I didn't put up a, a copy of this anywhere, but if you go online and you type in any of these medications on there, aside from the manufacturer sponsored website, one of the first hits you're gonna see on any search engine is from a plaintiff's attorney. And so there's a whole network of people that look for these alerts from the FDA. And virtually as soon as the alerts come out, they start a website or they update a website saying, if you've had any of these symptoms, you need to have a consultation with us because you could be seriously harmed. Um, so that's, that's one thing that may influence things in the future. And so again, if we're not paying attention to these things, we're gonna get into trouble. I pledge as an example of this, the government has expressed its displeasure with dermatologists for years, that people were getting prescriptions for Accutane, counseling was maybe not strong enough, patients were getting pregnant while taking the medication. <clears throat> Finally, the government said, this is completely unacceptable. There was the threat of yanking the medication from the market. And then we had iPledge. Now iPledge was designed by the manufacturers to try to help establish accountability both for the prescribers, but also for the patients and also those who were dispensing it. And um, to its benefit, it has helped to raise awareness and concerns in patients. Um, It also makes our life a little bit more difficult because we have to explain these things more thoroughly sometimes. Um, And it complicates the prescribing process to the point where some patients, some, uh, some physicians just won't prescribe it because they don't want to go through the trouble, uh, which is too bad because it's a good, good mitigation. So <clears throat> yeah, this was the more disturbing trend that kind of evolved through the fall. And I think I've updated this series of slides probably four times. Uh, so back in October, uh, we got a letter from the FDA saying, hey, There's been two courses, two cases, one confirmed and one unconfirmed. of patients that have had progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Um, This is an extremely rare condition. Uh, Causes inflammation in the brain. It is MS-like in its features in that patients can have problems with balance. They may feel confused. Uh, They might even have some nausea or vertigo. They may have some weakness. Um, And so, With those two cases, they said, hmm, well, here's a drug that's not very common. And as it turns out, for for patients that have been on the drug for more than three years, there's only been about, um, I should have had the statistic down. I think it is, there's only been about 8,000 patients that have been on Raptiva for more than eight years, for more than three years. So when they had at least one confirmed case and a possible other case, they said, we need to be paying attention to this. It may not be a trend, but we should be looking at it. Soon after November, there was a second confirmed case. So it's starting to look like it's more of a trend here. What's the other part of the trend? These patients are a little bit older. Uh, We know that in the average adult, 80% of us have antibodies to the JC virus that causes PML. So we already know from past experience in transplant patients and bone marrow suppression patients that suppression of the immune system may allow that virus to propagate. The main problem is, is there's no treatment for PML uh, and it can be fatal. So it's, it's pretty serious. And then in February, we've got a fourth confirmed case and disturbingly now someone who's a little bit younger too. So the response in February is that the European Union equivalent of the FDA yanked it from the market and uh, Canada did the same. Um, So, as of this morning, the FDA has not done that here in the United States. Uh, Who knows if that'll happen. Um, The FDA has ordered the the company that makes Raptiva that they need to provide this risk evaluation and what to do about it. And so if you go to the Raptiva website, there's information on all this. There is, of course, a plaintiff's attorney website, more than one, uh, that can help you with this as well. But the main theme here is is there's a serious side effect. It's something that was not recognized before. It it would be hard to recognize because there's not that many patients that are getting treatment. But it it, it is something that we need to pay attention to. Now, this is purely my speculation. um, But the company that makes this drug, when it was introduced, basically got squashed by other drugs that came on the market at the same time, and their market share has never been what they expected it to be. And I've heard that they've actually never made any money on this drug at all. So they've kept it out there basically for the good of the patient, but you have serious side effects happening, the company not making any money on the drug and plaintiff's attorneys that are salivating with the thought of it. Uh, I think that we can expect that these are, there's gonna be stronger warnings or the drug is gonna be removed from the market. Um, And so if you have patients that are on the medication now I I basically have called all of our patients and said we need to start with a contingency plan now. Back in the fall when I talked to them, most patients had improved so much on the medication. They said, "If it's so rare, I want to stay on this medication." You know, I haven't been this good in years, Um, but we might be getting past that at this point. So, and you know, we we have some past experience with this. We have drugs that have been on the market. Um, that have ended up getting pulled because of side effects that are there. <clears throat> like a lot of things, if you were on any of these medications, were you likely to die from any of the side effects? Well, no. It's actually pretty rare. Um, but if the risk is great, great enough, there's little incentive for a manufacturer to keep these on the market. You know, it was amazing to me when ViOx went off the market, the number of patients had told me, I'm so mad At, for the first time in years I had relief from my my arthritis pain and I wasn't taking narcotic. Um, So it's unfortunate, if maybe if our society had a little bit different priorities and we didn't have as much plaintiff's attorney work, companies would feel comfortable saying, hey, we can list this as a stronger warning. But uh, unless we have some tort reform, again, there's little incentive for a manufacturer to to keep a drug in the market. So how do we end up coping with the risks that are out there? Well, one is all the manufacturers for these drugs have been keeping ongoing safety data because that's been one of the concerns uh, from the get-go with the medications. And so they're, they're, they're keeping logs for all this and they'll continue periodically. When the drug reps come to visit you, they're gonna show you safety data that says, look at this long-term, look how safe my medication is. Um, so that's gonna be one thing. You may see people starting to modify their their dosing. Now it's going to be prohibitively expensive for the manufacturer to go through trials to get the FDA approved to say, well, now we can dose it this way or that way, because it's just so expensive for them to do. And I don't know about you, but um, a lot of my patients on their own have already invented their own dosing schedule that they want. So if they say, you know, doc, I know that if I wait 23 days. That's too much for me between my injections. But if I do every 22 days, I'm fine. So I'm going to do it every 22 days. Uh, so you, know, you can't sit there and, and watch over these people every day. And you, know, you just have, you have to, to kind of go with the flow and see what they do. Uh, you know, One of the big advertising points for Amivy for a long time was that, hey, we have a drug holiday. Well, the drug holiday that's in the Amivive regimen, you're on for roughly 12 weeks, and you're off, supposed to be off for every 12 weeks. That, that really wasn't designed at a convenience by the manufacturer, they had to do that because patients would start to have drops in their CD4 count that was unacceptable. Um, but again, we may see people starting to come out with regimens that are modified and saying, hey, if you have a patient on the next drug, you can have them on holiday for three months, and restart, you know, the question is, is is it gonna be as efficacious when they restart? Um, It's gonna be hard to have good data for that because there's not gonna be an incentive for the manufacturers to do that, (coughs) pardon me. And that's where it's gonna take either uh, academic centers or private clinicians to to publish some data if they can, if they can run a series for that. And then, you know, the main thing is, is we just need to be really vigilant about observation for side effects in all these patients So, you know, when they come in, you need to ask. They need to know that there's an open channel of communication. If you're helping to prescribe the medication, you know, they need to to know that they can call you. This is a a housing development that was built in Taiwan that no one ever moved into, Um, and now it's abandoned. So, all right, so... Other other things that might have an influence would be government policies. And so right now, essentially, FDA policy, it's not really a patent, but there's a what's called a, a, a use of exclusivity clause that they have for biologic medications. And that really came about not because of the medications that we're using now, but drugs like Epigen, uh, Procrit, drugs that are used in cancer patients that are, are really expensive. Um, the manufacturers sought some longevity there because of the um, R&D costs that are there. Now, in, if you go to Europe and Canada, what we're seeing now are the equivalent of generics. They're called follow-on biologics, um, and they're being used with some success in those areas. Um, it's, it's not without its problems because of what we discussed earlier with the, the difficulty in manufacturing. It's really, really hard for a company that's not used to producing something like this to get it produced. And because it's so expensive, the startup cost is going to be pretty bad. The advantage of having follow-on biologics is that it may be a significant cost savings to patients, to insurance companies, to society as a whole. Um, at the same time, uh, it, it has potential for a roadblock to innovation. Uh, now, as things stand now, if, if a manufacturer has 14 years to basically to make their profit, that's probably a pretty reasonable amount of time for them to do that. Um, now, I will, I'm going to preface this by saying I, I have no, uh, no position either for or against President Obama. I consider myself a skeptical uh, uh, nonpartisan. Uh, I, I end up getting pretty disappointed in every candidate, every election. Um, but during the campaign specifically, um, it, his campaign staff had mentioned that one of the things they wanted to do right away was to shorten... The, the period of exclusivity for these biologic medications. And so the, the drug industry was looking at that very, very nervously, um, because they don't, they don't want to have that happen. Now, uh, last night when I, when I got in, it was a little bit late, I got, got online to make sure I was being up to date, um, and there were already uh, one story this morning, and since, since I made my slides, a second story that's come out, today was a, a big day at the White House, there was a healthcare summit that was going on on, and they had members of Congress but also from industry there to talk about what can be done to contain the cost of medical care. And what at least is looking like is happening today is is that rather than going ahead and saying, we're gonna have caps on cost or something like that, um, by expanding coverage to more individuals, the, the argument that the administration is making is, hey, if you make a little bit less per patient, if we expand coverage of healthcare to more individuals, that means you're going to have more people on the medication. So you're going to get some money back that way. And that everybody's going to have to compromise. And so I I would say I applaud his administration for this. Everyone is going to have to compromise in order for us to get out of our current situation. So this is a wait and see thing. There was nothing specifically that came out today about biologic medications. You know, there are, obviously, you know, the the industry has has certain um, uh, interests that that they want to have represented. Uh, There are two um, articles. These are not articles that are new. They're articles from last session of Congress. Um, But at least you have people in Congress that have a reasonable view of this, and they recognize, hey, these medications, you know, they are really helpful to people, and we don't want to stop innovation for this. And you know, while we do wanna contain cost, there's also a bunch of communities, specifically Massachusetts and California, that have a lot of stake here because a lot of these drugs, their R&D and their manufacturing occur in those states. So uh, they don't wanna necessarily see that industry cut off of the knees either. So what can we expect? Has been the trend over the last several years is that we're likely to see higher copays for our patients. And specifically, uh, we're gonna see co-pays that are aimed at biologics. And I'll give you a ex- personal example. I have a close family member that's on one of these biologic medications. And this year, there's a bonus deductible that if you're on a biologic medication of $250, which granted is uh, it's a fraction of the cost of the medication. But you're gonna see more of these fees are gonna be tacked on. So patients are gonna have to expect to pay a little bit more. You know, the industry has lots of outlets there to help them, and on your handout, one of the things that I listed was a website for the National Psoriasis Foundation. There's some really great programs that are there for patients if they truly can't afford it. Um, And so, you know, hopefully, if patients are gonna have a hard time affording it, we can get the medication to them. Um, As is the trend with other medications, you get preferred drug formularies. That is gonna probably get reshaped as some of these new medications come, come online. And you may see policies that have carve out benefits and just say that's something that we don't cover. So, what can we expect? The good of what we can expect is we're gonna continue to see drugs with really high efficacy, with a really high specificity, with convenient dosing for the patients. And for the most part, probably not much in the way of side effects that's gonna interfere with their daily lives. The bad is, is that we're gonna probably continue to see high potency side effects that we're gonna have to watch out for. We're gonna have to, to really watch and see what the FDA is going to do with things. And then, unfortunately, we're guaranteed it's like death and taxes, at least in our current structure, the way our society works. Lawsuits are a reality. It's a strong motivator for, for actions by people. A final self promote shameless promotion for the Hoosier State. Uh, if you don't have a copy of this in your office, you should. Um, Dr. Wolverton's on the faculty at IU. It's just a tremendous resource, um, and it's a resource where everything is one spot, in one spot for you. I believe they're already working on the third edition now. So this is the last futuristic shot. This is our, our little Airstream in, in, next to our garage there in Ho- Ho- Hoosier Sunset. So, I apologize again for my, my lack of voice, and I'll try to take questions if you would like me to. <clears throat>
0: Is there anything in the the future for treating psoriasis in uh, uh, immunosuppressed patients?
1: Treating psoriasis in immunosuppressed patients, yeah. I don't know of anything specifically. Um, usually, if they are immunosuppressed for some other reason, in theory, their their psoriasis should be under better control. If it's a general immunosuppression. Um, I think what's more likely is you're going to see more and more people feel comfortable overlaying different medications. So, again, fr- frankly, when I have questions about, gosh, I feel like I'm in uncharted territory here, I call Dr. Fretzen and I say, Scott, do you have anybody like this? And it, it's always reassuring to me that no, someone else is faced with that same situation. So I have a couple different patients. Like I have a, one of my worst psoriatic patients. Um, has been at one point on two different biologics at one time, and he's also been overlapped uh, with cyclosporine at the same time. Um, I love cyclosporine, it's a great drug when someone's flared and they're under control. At the same time, I fear it, um, both for its renal toxicity and the potential for malignancy. So um, I would say, you know, I would look in the journals, it's probably gonna be more in case reports where you're gonna see for diseases, for, for medications that are existing that are out there. That market is probably small enough, again, if you're looking at just psoriasis in immunosuppressed patients, that it's not gonna be worthwhile for a manufacturer to go for a true FDA approval for that indication, but it doesn't mean that someone's not out there trying it.
0: I work in a clinic where uh, <clears throat> there's probably about 20%, 25% HIV positive patients, and it's, it's a very frustrating right. position to be in um, to offer them no more than maybe a light box and topical steroids.
1: Right. And, you know, the, the uh, oral retinoids uh, in that patient population is sometimes helpful, too, and you don't have to worry about immunosuppression for that. But, you know, it, it's a uh, it's a real fear if you have someone who's already immunosuppressed. But, well, what am, what am I going to be doing here? Some of those pathways that we talked about, particularly some of the natural killer cells, they're a little bit more prone. That's a pathway that is used against viruses a little bit more. And so I would say that... My guess is most infectious disease doctors are not going to want to go down at least those certain pathways that are there. Yes? Can you comment on the reversibly versus irreversibly, irreversibly bound TNF? Yes. Um, you know, and I'm sure you guys have probably experienced this. There's oftentimes sort of pot shots that are taken by different companies and other, well, we, we bind irreversibly, so that's, that's good because if you have a bad reaction to it oh, it's going to be out of your system more whereas if you're binding irreversibly well it's there and it may be a more potent action and you know I don't I would say that I don't think anyone really can say for sure what difference that makes a, is a true therapeutic effect I think most people would agree that for remicade and humira which are both irreversibly binding agents their onset of action seems to be a little bit quicker than irreversibly binding in in embryo, um, and it, at least the government stance on it has been to say, well, we're cautious about that too. We're cautious about the side effect, and so that's one of the reasons why the package insert for Humira says, after they have tried other options, that they're a candidate for that. You know, if you talk to the to basic scientists about it, I, I think you know honestly we don't know what difference that makes that much. You know, one of the thoughts is is that the irreversible binding causes cell, cell lysis and that's why it works in Crohn's and why embryo doesn't have an indication for that. But I'm not sure that everyone agrees on that. So you know ultimately what it comes down to it is if, if it's relatively safe and it works for the patient, you know, we're probably gonna do it. So any other questions?
0: What are your thoughts on the excimer laser for psoriasis? I'm sorry, I can't hear. What are your thoughts on the excimer laser for psoriasis?
1: Um, you know, we've had ours in the office for over three years, and like you know, like a lot of light treatments, I, I think it's very. It, from a theoretical standpoint, I really like it because you're only delivering UV to the skin that truly needs it. You know, why would we be irradiating our patients with UV when we tell the general public? time stop getting UV on skin that doesn't have psoriasis um, I think you know, like most light therapy too if people go through a, a, a period of treatment with it it tends to get better um, but when they stop it tends to gradually kind of fade back um, we've found it just really helpful for patients that have scalp psoriasis that you know may not be a candidate or don't want to be on a, uh, another medication methotrexate or a biologic or a retinoid Um, And so it can work really well for that. Um, From a practical standpoint, it's a little bit time-consuming for your staff to to administer it. Um, And interestingly, insurance sometimes views it differently than they do phototherapy in the box, even though it's the same wavelength. (coughs) Pardon me. And that's probably because there's a pretty big difference and the price that you can get reimbursed for it, and so I think most people end up asking for a lot more for the laser. Um, but you know, we have, uh, like a, for example, one of the GM plants that's near us. It's not on the GM policy. You can't get it done if you have net insurance through GM. But you know, other private insurance, it's fine. So it just depends. Um, you know, it, it's going to be if you've got the room for it in your office. Um, It's great not to have to have people on medication. And I would say most of our patients that have gotten it done have liked it. Um, They also have to be flexible because they're usually coming in twice a week. And, you know, like a lot of us, it's hard to stop your, your day and go to an office and get treatment. And unlike the light booth where you can sort of put them in there and they're on autopilot for your staff, that takes a staff out of rotation for doing things too. Anyone else? Thank you so much and thank you for
0: your patience.